Hi, Val here, and this is my podcast, The Kalahari Diaries. I live in one of Africa's most remote wilderness areas. Nature and wildlife is my biggest passion. I hand-dressed Serga the lioness and walked the Kalahari to join her on her hunts. My work is on tourism and nature conservation. For fun, but also for wildlife monitoring, I fly anything that gets me into the air. I live in an old caravan. The next supermarket is a two and a half hour drive away on sandy and bumpy roads. There is no cell reception anywhere nearby and the only comms is an extremely slow, extremely expensive satellite internet connection. I am Valentin Grüner and this is my podcast The Kalahari Diaries. Hi guys and welcome to The Kalahari Diaries. Before we get started with the episode, I'd like to tell you why we've been a little behind on our podcast schedule lately. The reason was massive bushfires that spread across the Kalahari and also threatening our reserve, home and our livelihood. Hundreds of thousands of hectares went up in flames just in the past two months and we were busy here fighting the fires and protecting our home. In this episode, I have a special guest who is an expert in bushfires. Dr. Torov Meyer is a professor at the University of Texas and has a long history as a researcher here in Botswana. In this episode, we will talk about the nature of bushfires here in the Kalahari and on a more global scale. Are these fires a direct link to climate change? Can we do anything to prevent them? I have a ton of questions for Torov and I hope you enjoy this episode just as much as I did. All right. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Kalahari Diaries. This episode is a little bit of a special one since I have a, a personal friend and guest for this podcast here with me. Um, his name is Dr. Torolf Meyer. He's a professor at the University of Texas, and he's with the Geography Department. He is teaching environmental science-related subjects. He has been doing research in Botswana for quite some time now, and I think he can just tell us a little bit about that himself. Yeah, hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Torolf, and uh, as Val just stated, I'm a professor at the University of Texas in the Department of Geography and the Environment, to be uh, precise. Yeah, and uh, what, are, what am I doing there? I do teach introductory level environmental science, upper division environmental science. I teach classes on how to look at Earth from a distance, from space from the distance between Earth and a drone, or Earth and an aircraft. And uh, we are trying to find out things about how ecosystems function and, uh, yeah, how they work. That's pretty cool. Um, and you've also been involved, actually, in fieldwork in Botswana for quite a large amount of time by now, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I've been, uh, <laughs> I've been working here since I was a student myself. And uh, when I also was doing my master's degree, actually, I worked in the Okavango Delta up in the northern parts of Botswana. And after that, I essentially never left. And I moved on into the Kalahari environments about 25 years ago. And I essentially never really left the Kalahari with regards or as far as my research goes. So, yeah, that's what I do. I look at plants. And I look at things that plant, plants interact with, mainly on the side of herbivory, so grazing pressure, browsing pressure, and fire. And then I'm most interested in how do these plants community respond to these so-called disturbances, and uh, what is the economic effect for people that live in these uh, particular environments or that try, in other words, that try to make a living in these environments. Cool. Um, yeah, so actually that's also how I met Torov. I started joining him while he was busy doing fieldwork for his PhD. And that's also quite a few years ago by now. And I had actually planned this time to go and see Torov somewhere in Maun in the north of Botswana where he's based at the moment. And somehow by chance and a little more unfortunately for us we actually had a very large fire hit our area just a few weeks ago and it, it took us about 10 days to actually get sorted and get through this thing it kept on popping out and burning again and burning again so it was quite a, a, a horrible thing for us but we got away okay none of our buildings are destroyed the animals are safe uh, we're all very tired 
And lucky for Torov, he actually was able to come down now and I didn't have to go all the way to Mount because he's now doing some scientific uh, work on these fires here. We're going to try to measure the vegetation recovery, what he just uh, brought up over the next years, potentially decades, um, to see how these burned areas that happen here now are going to recover in the future. So, yeah, that's why we're actually sitting here at home in the camp. There might be some back now, uh, back background noise we're just in the middle of uh, the bush with a couple of birds around us right now and we've been busy with the fire for the last few days and this is actually not just the reason Torov is here to do scientific work but also the subject for this whole podcast so fires have been something that yeah it's been a massive subject for us this season uh, the drastic uh, fires here we had a very good rainy season previously and Accordingly, a lot of biomass, especially grass standing around that now burned and it was actually scary. But it wasn't just an issue here. Fires, if I look at the news lately, it's a it's a worldwide subject all over the place. I know of big fires in the United States, Canada, Cyprus, India, Israel, Russia, Turkey, France, Greece, Spain, Italy. And there's probably a hell of a lot more countries where uh, larger scale fires have been happening. And so there's a question here for Toro with all of this stuff that's in you know that's happening right now is that natural uh, does it belong into all of these ecosystems and how much do people actually know about this by now i mean fire is a difficult subject so according or the figure that i use is that humans have been actively using fire for instance for about 30,000 years or so and uh, natural fires obviously have been around for much longer and uh, from a physical point of view, from a physics point of view, a few things need to come together in order to make a fire happen. And the fire essentially needs enough fuel to burn, number one. It needs oxygen, number two. And number three, it needs a source of ignition. And uh, we can actually see that from a scientific point of view, from all three uh, starting points, these points are actually called the fire triangle. And uh, we could come up with different theories on all three corners of that particular triangle. So the fact is that most ecosystems that um, in one way or the other rely on fire. And when it comes to fire, one particular thing is important, and that is how often does an ecosystem burn? This is referred to as the fire frequency. So, and the fire frequencies for different ecosystems generally differ. While fire frequencies, let's say in boreal forests, uh, in the pine forests and fir forests up in the northern part of the world, fire frequencies up there are in the order of hundreds of years. Nobody really knows that since research hasn't been around that much, etc. But so it's, nobody is certain about these numbers. So as ecosystems, as we move towards drier areas, ecosystems tend to burn more often naturally. When it comes to savanna environments uh, in Africa or the United States, for instance, fire frequency tends to increase. So these areas burn more often, and that has got something to do with the type of fuel that is available at a certain point of time. So, And fuel is related to productivity. And in these dryland savanna ecosystems like the ones we have, our productivity changes from one year to the next because our rainfall variation is very high. And what responds to rainfall quite dramatically is the amount of grass biomass that is available here to burn. Now, this is different than forested ecosystems, but here for the Kalahari, for the Kalahari environment, that holds certainly true. So each year with varying rainfall, we do have a different risk of the fire. Now, oxygen generally is available. The question is, where is the ignition coming from? So, and uh, in these particular environments at this, that time of the year where a big high pressure system dominates all over Botswana, meaning there is not a single cloud in, in the sky, lightning as one of the few natural sources of an ignition is non-existent. 
That so means it's human that cost. means it is human cost, and that confirms with um, international research where today over ninety far over ninety percent of all wildfires that occur are in one way or the other caused by humans, meaning they're intentionally set or they're accidents. Okay. So that's interesting. So if, yeah, they do burn naturally, basically anywhere in most ecosystems at a certain amount of in time. But at this stage, it is people who cause by far the majority of all wildfires worldwide. Um, what we're seeing today in the news, I mean, it's all over the place. So what I've been wondering personally is a little bit like, are we, are we over the last say thirty to forty years, not like the the shorter uh, past? Do we have a massive increase in fires worldwide or is it something that is just much more sort of portrayed in the worldwide media at the moment? You know, people may, may be a bit bored more online to look at things because of Corona and lockdown and all the, these things. So is the media simply portraying this whole thing a lot more? Is it is there actually a massive increase in wildfires the way it sort of looks like if you're looking at the news at, right now? There are probably a couple of things there, but let's start off. If there wouldn't be a lot of ocean on this planet that's also why this planet is called the blue planet it should actually be called the red planet because of the amount of fire that occurs on a given day on this planet at least as long as modern humans exist so fire has always been part of this the question that uh, comes up now is are these fires these already existing numerous fires is this number increasing and is that increase fueled by changes in environmental conditions where the conditions change in a way that favors fire? Um, that is, my hypothesis here is, yes, this is most likely the case. But another thing that we shouldn't forget is our connectivity with regards to media. And media needs to present something that uh, has a clientele that watches it, listens to it, etc. So it is probably a combination of both, that it gets way more media attention, especially over the last five, six years, Yeah, with the big fires in the United States that seriously caused havoc. Um, nobody really records on fires in Africa, so as long as, as it isn't, as long as people, people aren't affected, or massive amounts of people and properties um, are affected, or poster child ecosystems like the Amazon rainforest, then it is not interesting enough for the media to report something. But there is another component that we often forget, and that is um, that humans, especially in, let's call that the Western world for now, they are starting to increase, uh, inc encroach into these wild areas and therefore creating a wildland urban interface where people mix with these environments, especially around California, Texas, Arizona, in the United States uh, and throughout Europe, where, they, where people essentially encroach into these areas that would naturally burn because every, not every single one, but most people like to live in nature, have natural vegetation around them and preferably have a slope. So, and that slope creates a view for that house that I'm going to build. Yeah, slopes and uh, natural vegetation they don't go very well, or they go very well together, actually, when it comes to wildfires, because it increases the intensity and the severity that fire actually shows. So it's three components. It's probably caused by drying. There is more media rep representation, and there's people encroaching into, into wild areas. Okay, that makes sense. And obviously the house standing there is not ideal for the perfect condition for a fire. Um, yeah, actually coming pretty much into this wild areas now. I mean, people have, have been part of this planet for a very long time and we potentially have a very, very large impact on every corner of this planet by now because of our activity on it. And the question is about management of these areas. Now, 
I know a lot about wildlife management in the Kalahari ecosystem. I know there are people that know a lot about forest management in other areas where, where we have big, big forests and stuff like that. And I also am fairly aware of the fact that in the past, the policy used to be, that's including the Kalahari and many other ecosystems, that a burn is generally a terrible thing. It's a horrible thing. It must be kept away. So we've been managing for qu quite a long time into a direction where it's only logical that every year more biomass builds up, what we would call fuel for, for wildfire. So the question here is, has it, this mismanagement or actually over-prevention of wildfires in the past, is that part of what's leading to much more severe and damaging fires that isn't affecting people's houses, livelihoods and lives? Is that a, a, a factor that we know of or that's considerable? So land management certainly plays a role in that. And management is objective-driven, so meaning that every management strategy has a goal in mind. And in many countries and for many years, fire was viewed as something extremely negative in a landscape. And therefore, fire suppression strategies were put into place. So fire breaks were built. Uh, etc. Fire was actively uh, fought, etc. And over time, in certain ecosystems, this leads to an accumulation of fuel. And uh, once that fuel accumulates, that also means that there is more stuff to burn in the case of a fire event. If more burns, the fire releases more energy and has a higher destructive effect. That is one part of uh, of that so in a lot of societies and a lot of countries etc fire suppression over the years has played a very very uh, important role and has certainly increased the risk of wildfire in a cer in certain areas now management or fire management has some sort of throttled back a little bit over the last decade or so where uh, fire is actually to a point where fire is actively used as a management tool to manage landscapes, to remove fuel. So, but to remove fuel loads that are way lower than the accumulated fuel loads I talked about a little bit earlier. Hence, or therefore, decreasing the risk and of wildfire. And if a fire should still occur, decreasing the amount of energy that is released and therefore decreasing the destructive effect. So land management essentially has made a 180 degree turn and uh, has gone away from it, from suppressing fires. Yes, fires will still be suppressed in densely populated areas, etc., etc. But as we said earlier, Certain ecosystems actually have a codependency with fire, so they need fire in order to maintain the current state of the way they look like at the moment. So in our case here, it's a little bit of a tree grass balanced, which is a balance which is also influenced by the amount of grazers, etc. Yeah. Going back to land management, in our case here, we need to ask what do we want to manage our area towards to? So, and that this is an important question, and fire as well as herbivory plays a very important role in that. All right, now that, that all makes sense. Um, everything that I read about fires in the general media, not in scientific journals or anything like that, but the mainstream media, news channels, what we're looking at, and also just talking to people sort of in the street that you meet, the word or when it comes to the subject of fires at the moment, it's pretty much thrown in the same sentence with climate change. And from what we've just been discussing now, basically saying actually simple mismanagement of areas because of a misunderstanding or a difference in a goal uh, that we had with that area maybe um, has led to us managing and completely differently today. So that may just be a reason for some very severe large fires breaking out at this stage. Of course, a bit of a dry air time doesn't um, you know, help necessarily to prevent the fire. But is what we call climate change, which definitely, I mean, it's a thing that exists, but is that a factor on these fires that we're seeing today, 2021? Um, is that something that is considered as a thing caused by climate change? Or is this just 
something that we like to throw in the same sentence because it's another selling point in the media at the moment. One needs to make a difference here. So if it is 100% caused by climate change, nobody can really say that to my knowledge. Um, but droughts, for instance, or times of like we had this year here, times of high productivity followed by drought conditions in one way or the other, certainly don't make the situation easier. It increases the fire risk. Um, so these cycles of drought and non-drought conditions, they have actually always been part of, the, of a system. So now the question is, do, is the drought frequency getting or are they occurring more often? Is the area drying out overall? So what, what is my average doing? And, and research certainly points into the direction that climate change does play a role in it. The problem is to which extent? Right. So at the moment, I think it is a little bit too early to say to which, which extent does climate change play in wildfire occurrences. There, is, there are researchers pointing into the direction, but the conclusion is missing. Okay. So we're not quite certain about that yet. And probably as most of these things, I mean, from, you know, these questions, I think most of them are just not as simple as we'd like them to be. And it usually ends up, from what you've said before, uh, is more uh, accumulation of different factors that, that lead to this and climate change potentially may be one of them or will end up definitely being part of this this problem that we're seeing today. Um, yeah, I mean, fires are a global issue and uh, I'd love to talk about everything else as well, but I would also and mainly like to focus on the ecosystem we're sitting in right now, uh, specifically considering we just had a massive fire come right through our area and yeah, actually nearly taken away my livelihood, uh, want to put it politely, everything nearly went off in flames. So we just had a very real experience with this whole occurrence here in the Kalahari. Um, what is the general role of a fire? You already touched on some of the stuff, but here specifically for this southern Kalahari in Botswana, what is the role that a fire plays here? So, I mean, fire occurrence... What, what our own research has shown over the last um, 20 years, certain areas of the Kalahari burn approximately every four years. So it differs a little bit. And, uh, of course, the return intervals is uh, way, 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 way higher as one moves further south. So in, in your area here, the return interval, we can't really say it, but we have only recorded fire so far once every 10 years. That does not make it a scientifically proven fire return interval, just the number of samples is too low here. Okay, so this being said, but what it does, it removes, fire removes excessive amounts of what I call light fuel. It's grass biomass. And grass and grasses, once they catch fire, they burn excessively fast. So they generally do not burn as hot, but we will get back to the, to the temperature of a fire in a minute. So they burn very, very fast. And the question here is, is the time where a flame is incident on a piece of fuel that let's say is a shrub, is that enough time and enough temperature to set that little shrub on fire or to destroy it. And in the case of larger shrub species, larger meaning about knee height, it is not enough in the research that we have conducted where we have done controlled burns in controlled environments. And I'm emphasizing the word controlled here because for safety reasons, we do not burn above certain wind speeds. And what we have measured so far, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, we've measured temperatures around 450 degrees. Under even more controlled conditions and with higher wind speeds, I have measured temperatures in excess of 850 degrees Celsius. For the reference, this is beyond the melting point of uh, aluminium, for instance, <laughs> so, way beyond. So it, the situation differs. And, uh, but it removes fuel. 
And it is said throughout the literature to be a good tool in range management to fight shrub encroachment. For our Kalahari environment, that might not hold true under general conditions. Only under exceptional conditions, as we have seen it on your place, where you had almost twice as the amount of rain that you would normally get, resulting in an almost continuous fuel cover, a continuous carpet of grass that has a nice three-dimensional structure that is knee-high. And uh, then you get your spark, wherever that spark comes from. And that spark happened on a windy day where your wind speed is probably above four meters per second. And that creates way higher temperatures than my recorded 450 degrees. It increases the flame length. It increases the speed of your fire. And it increases the severity because you have more, you reach higher temperatures. And this is what you have seen. And this now might be enough to burn that shrub into the ground. So under normal conditions, you might just see that a very little shrublet, a really, really tiny baby shrub is affected and killed. Here it will wipe out, it has the potential to wipe out larger shrubs. Yeah. So, and this, this is what, what whiffs or what I have seen on the way in here, even big trees having burned into the ground and things like this. Exactly. So, but on a long run, most of this vegetation is going, most of these shrubs that have been burned down, they will most likely recover. So we have seen right. this in the aftermath of the 2017 Central Kalahari Game Reserve fire, where I find, where I think, if I remember correctly, our shrub mortality rate is less than 4%. Okay, now that's that's pretty interesting. So if we, if we draw a bottom line underneath this... Um, the fires in the Kalahari, mostly for probably, although there are a few other smaller factors involved, but the main purpose is to actually clear out that biomass, that grass, essentially. Yeah, um, there is the. There are some aspects to this, because if your grass biomass doesn't get eaten, your ecology lecture at school tells you that it will decompose. Uh, and this certainly holds true in a lot of ecosystems, but under certain circumstances, it doesn't decompose by bacteria and it gets recycled into nutrients and trampled and whatever. No, it just sits on the ground and it oxidizes and it creates a gray carpet of biomass that's just laying on the ground and takes ages under our dry conditions here to essentially break down. Yeah. So and this adds to the fuel load, and the, and uh, it also prevents new grass from coming up, etc., because it blocks light, etc., etc. So and a large fire will certainly remove all of this biological material, and what is left is your grasses, and for a lot of grass species, especially the ones that live for around two years to four, five, six years, their, their root system, which is in the ground, is most likely not going to be affected. So they're going to re-sprout relatively quickly if there is enough root biomass available and if there is moisture available. Yeah. So fire can also have a very positive effect on these ecosystems here in the Kalahari. Yeah, I actually just want to you know, paint a picture for our listeners here a little bit because I've been observing this happening in the Kalahari now for quite some years and these areas where the grass falls over and just, it just lies there. It's it's like a, a complete carpet of, of straw, actually. And the only thing I can compare that to, if you, if you rake it away, the ground underneath looks exactly like the spots where as a kid in Europe I pitched my tent on the green lawn outside the house. And I was always supposed to remove that tent after two days so that it does not ruin the garden. But being a kid, you leave it there for two weeks and forget about it. And and by the time you take it off, there's an absolutely bare patch of soil. That only happens when you have tolerant parents. Yeah, I guess they were very tolerant. But but it, it taught me that, yeah, having a tent standing there is not very good. And the same thing happens here. So this soil here and the ground actually needs to be relatively open for this grass cover to return. So 
bottom line, fires are not necessarily a bad thing at all. Coming into this, uh, whether fires are bad, I also know that most of my listeners here are actually very concerned about wildlife and animals. Um, from a science perspective, do uh, personally, I actually have found nothing yet, but do we know anything about what happens to our wildlife in the Kalahari, large animal species, small animal species? What do fires do to them? I mean, when I walked into my or into the aftermath of the first wildfire I ever assessed, I really expected there to be dead animals around, you know, it's like a dead spring box somewhere, yeah. you know, or a dead steambok or dead turtles or something. And we ran kilometers of transects through these burned areas and I didn't see a single dead larger vertebrate animal so i know it clears out things like ticks and and and, and insects and yeah. things like this it certainly has an effect because you can see it so as soon as the flames are here the birds are there just hammering insects in the air and also in the aftermath you know birds essentially just search this entire area but i've never seen a dead turtle a dead snake a dead lizard or let alone big animals. I'm also not doing research on that, but by now I would say I have hundreds of kilometers of burned areas under my belt and I've never seen a dead animal yeah, that uh, died in the fire. Yeah, I have to agree with Torov here completely. I've also looked at quite a few burned areas now and been part of quite a few controlled burns and I've never seen a dead animal yet. I'm sure a few smaller... Yeah, animals happen. will will get killed i but i want to point out at this stage here we have an ostrich in our area that's tame that is nesting and we we watched that fire go right through that area and i i was sure that we we're going to find a burnt ostrich there the next day and a bunch of cooked eggs and yeah sure enough the next morning when i went to actually check it out there's our ostrich hen sitting perfectly happy on her eggs everything seems normal and fine in a completely burnt landscape so even a nesting ostrich survived the fire going right through the grass around her nest um, and surely she must have run away while that happened but the eggs are safe so things are designed to actually work out for these animals somehow yeah i mean if you look at your area your grass cover is different you have these Let's call that fields of continuous grass cover. And then you have the open areas where there's a little bit of spacing between one tuft of grass yeah. and another one. So it's not that complete carpet. So your fire physics will be different in both of these grass environments. So we're now looking at a way smaller scale here or larger scale. So or we're looking at more detail and the detail here matters. So the devil lies in the detail. So there's a big difference, burning one grass habitat, even here in the Kalahari, and then burning the other grass community yeah. that is 50 meters down the dirt truck. So, and it will have a different effect on things like the ostrich, or even what kind of grass community are we going to see next year? Are these grasses that are more palatable by the animals? Or are these communities that are less less palatable by these animals? And quite frankly, that's why we are here to find that out on our long run. <laughs> so, because for the Kalahari, nobody really has these scientific data or knows this kind of stuff. Yeah. Cool. So I guess that gives you a bit of the reason why Torov is actually here and why we're trying to do this, because there is no book for us to actually find out about it yet, and we're going to try and be the ones to write that. <laughs> yeah, let's in hope some so. Way. Um, all right. With regards to fires, just because you've already mentioned it, and I, I personally, I learned when I did my ranger courses, I think about 12 years ago, about fires and controlled burns, that generally a hot burn would be something you consider a fire moving against the wind with the argument that it spends much more time to move forward and that it has to generate more heat in order to do that and to keep on burning, whereas a fire that would move with the wind is sort of blown along and quickly rushes through the grass. Now, simply from the experience I had just now, we're literally looking at a wall that I reckon, not wall, you call it a carpet of flames that was about, I would say, 100 meters long and at its front around three stories high and was moving what I would say at, at 10 to 15 kilometers per hour, which is pretty insane for, for a fire here in, in the bush. 
Um, and I'm not actually joking, it ate the neighboring ranch, which is 10 by 10 kilometers in about an hour, which means it went, th it went through the, an entire area at 10 kilometers per hour. And we started back burning along our fire breaks to try and save our areas. And even like, I mean, you could not go near that big fire coming in like this. It, was, it would have been deadly. And all the fires we started setting inside our area afterwards to try and prevent the big thing from actually destroying us completely were fires burning slowly against the wind, which is something that I had learned previously is the one to avoid. But I have to say in the aftermath was by far the more friendly fire for this environment. So can we talk about hot and cold burns? But from my experience, I would say there simply isn't this general rule. But this thing moving with the wind would have definitely been, from what I could see, by far the worst for the vegetation. So I'm not going to questioning your ranger cause. So when you burn against the wind, the flame is, at, is incident at a particular point for a much longer time and potentially causes more damage as in a normal grass fire where it just runs through. But now let's go to a different scenario. The old way of melting steel or working steel people used a flame and a device that blew air into the flame and the coal and that was to increase the temperature of the actual fire in order to actually get it to the temperature to burn or to to melt steel so this is the same effect you you have here or you saw on your neighbor's farm because your wind speeds were so high it supplied way more oxygen to enough fuel blowing the flames forward laying the flame flat out instead of your little campfire where the flame goes nicely up yeah. no this, this flame is almost in a parallel to the surface and the wind just pushes that and these flames easily reach temperatures we don't know it yet because nobody has measured it here but if i have reached the 850 degrees in my somewhat controlled setup i would not be surprised to see temperatures that are higher than that yeah and that gives a completely different meaning to the word hot burn okay so so if we had a light breeze coming through at night a fire with the wind would have been a nice thing but with this kind of wind speeds, we're looking at a very devastating... You're looking fire. at a very devastating fire. So right. for safety reasons, for our controlled environment burns, we try to burn below two meters per second wind speed. You had at least six, seven. So we haven't looked at the data yet. But this was significantly higher from what I saw on the yeah. weather pages already, let alone wind gusts. We are not even talking yeah. about this. And that fire also creates its own draft because you have got hot air essentially rising in front yeah. of the fire. And that it hot air needs to be replaced and it gets essentially pulled in. And that is oxygen rich air that just gets thrown onto this, onto this, onto these flames. And it essentially, it's like putting petrol into a fire. Yeah. You just add more burnable stuff. Remember at the beginning when we talked about the triangle, the triangle it yeah. needs fuel and it needs oxygen. And by then the lightning source is out of the equation. Yeah. And you have plenty of fuel and you just resupplied oxygen. And that just burns. Yeah, I can I can vouch for that. It burned. <laughs> um, cool. So now I guess this is a little bit of a delicate subject actually everywhere at the moment but we definitely got to speak about it here if we're looking into worldwide what we would say the mainstream global politics actually today there's a lot about preventing climate change from happening stopping climate change setting goals which are look, living more environmentally friendly and things like that and trying to not completely ruin the planet are definitely uh, things to you know strive towards to and 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 continue these goals but is it realistic to say we can prevent this climate change because quite frankly to me it looks like we're already in it and um, this whole carbon storage carbon emissions are bushfires now adding to what we're already doing on the planet or is this something that should be happening is the kalahari still something that we consider some an area 
that stores carbon for us or is it actually now emitting more than it can store with bushfires like that happening and is climate change a big factor in that and can we prevent climate change or is it just something that we need to sort of learn to live along with yeah i mean first of all for the first part of the question about the uh, climate change conditions i mean i believe we we cannot stop climate change at this point in time we should have made that decision 40 years ago so i'm we can just today and where, poli uh, where politics and policies should uh, go towards to is to prevent further emissions of greenhouse gases. But as humankind, we need to learn how to adapt to our changing environmental conditions. And that requires painful, painful, politically unpopular decisions in order to mitigate climate change and to adapt to the changing climatic conditions. Let this be rising sea levels. Let this be a potential increase in fires. Let this be a potential increase in drought conditions and a decrease in harvest in certain areas. It requires a new thinking. And that new thinking should focus on adapting to these conditions to an equal amount, if not more, than to preventing it. Right. I don't want to downplay the, the decreasing yeah, greenhouse. Yeah, I, I see But it's time yeah. to be honest and say, hey, we need to adapt. Hey, you need to move out of that area because this flood that you, we have seen, it's going to hit you every three or four or five years. So why don't we move you out? This is going to be very, very unpopular with the public, with politicians, etc., etc. But as far as fire, to get back to that, I mean, savannah and savannah-like environments take up about 35% of the terrestrial surface. And for a long time, we didn't, scientists didn't even know if, if they were a sink for CO2. So if they take up more CO2 from the atmosphere than they're actually emitting, every ecosystem naturally emits CO2. It's just a matter, it's like a bank account. Yeah. Is there more going in? And is my savings increasing? That would be a sink. Or am I spending more than I actually have? Mm. And I just live with borrowed money, yeah, no, um, which would be a source. Which <laughs> <laughs> would be a source. Uh, but the fact is, if these ecosystems start burning more frequently, then they could become a source of CO2. And there's research going into this direction uh, at this particular point in time. So um, we can't say it for now. We can't say it with certainty. But in some areas, they have already become a source because at least over the last five years or 10 years, time plays a role here. At what time frame am I looking at? Two years? Am I looking at five years? Am I looking at 10 years, 20 or 100 yeah. So uh, am I looking at my bank account over one year, over one month, one year, 10 years or a lifetime? Yeah. So and uh, lifetime is relatively difficult in our science sense, because a lot of the records, they don't go back that long yeah, and in order to make sense. a statistically valid uh, statement. So we could just look at the short term. Yes. Uh, and it, yeah. it's, it's problematic, but there is a risk for that. Right. So. If fires increase, there will be more CO2 released. There is no doubt on that. Yeah, so that means climate change actually also in the Kalahari could mean that something that would have been a helpful addition to our climate problems actually will become something adding on to the problem. Yes. If, yeah, if not managed in some way or another. One can manage it, and now we're back at management. So, or we can just say, oh yeah, <laughs> it burns, it happens, it happens. But in order to manage it, management also needs to be uh, done or needs to be based on a scientifically sound um, basis. Yeah. And if we don't have this scientifically sound basis, we can't make a scientifically sound decision. And uh, that plays down to funding, for instance. It's like, where is the funding? And uh, it's something people do not tend to fund is this type of baseline 
research, for looking instance. Looking at grass. Yeah. Looking at grass. I mean, you know, it's like, uh, how much press am I going to get if I run an Instagram account on, on grass? Versus a couple of lions and versus elephants. Of, or versus of lions. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, that, that, that makes total sense. And actually coming exactly to what you were mentioning right now, there's often this general perception out there in people, and I have to completely include myself, say, 15 years ago in, in, into that, that we say, what is everybody doing with nature? Nature must just be left alone. We just leave it there, and that's the best thing to do. You know, we shouldn't. And it goes from... A larger scale thing do not interfere there or just individual animals but there's a general idea in people that makes them feel good by saying let's just not touch it now having worked with this for most of my adult life i i need to say to look i'm watching an ecosystem being completely devastated by people be it fires being lit because none of the fires that happened this year in the kalahari were were set naturally um albeit individual animals that are being poached, some of the last lions in certain areas, last, other predators, uh, uh, even smaller animals like pangolin, all kinds of things. And it's all caused by people. So now in an overall picture, to me, that means we managing, it doesn't mean interfering. Interfering is something we're doing just by existing the way we are. And by saying, I want to go into an area and manage this, as scientifically sound as we can with the data that is available. That to me just means I choose my impact to be positive on these wildlife areas rather than negative because the negative one already is there, right? Um, what's your take on this whole story and like with management? And I mean, there's sm small things on fires, for example. Today, we have so many fragmented areas looking at our one little farm. Say that was the only place left where we had some of our antelope running around. That thing can blow burn down in one night, as we just experienced. And that's not very good because all the biomass is gone. Whereas in the past, when this area is the size of several countries in Europe, the animals would have had somewhere else to move because many areas probably would not have burned naturally. So what is that today, management? Is it necessary? How necessary is it? And who makes the decisions on how to manage these places? I mean, human, humans influence essentially every single corner on, on Earth. So, but to condense that back to our terrestrial surfaces for this example, it's we do have natural or nature-like areas in Europe, in, in, in Asia, in South America, in North America. But these natural areas or these nature-like areas, they're becoming more islands in an environment that is dominated by human activity. And uh, on islands, one runs risk of extinction or change from one island system to a completely different one very, very quickly. Quickly, We learned that literally from islands. So in our nature or nature-like areas, they are islands in a sea of human activity. Yeah. And uh, if I want to maintain their status quo, then I can't just let them go and let, leave them alone anymore. They need management. They, under some circumstances, need intervention. But it starts with monitoring. And one needs to set certain parameters, certain benchmarks. And they need to be scientifically derived what they should be. Or they should be derived from uh, my management objective. So what do I want to do with this area? And then humankind or conservation in our case needs to react to keep these benchmarks where they are so or we make the decision as conservationists and say is like leave it and let it see what comes next because certain change is irreversible by now the introduction of invasive grass species for economic reasons in north america in the united states they have taken over entire landscapes it's not natural but it is natural because I can't get rid of this grass species anymore my ecosystem will change it will change from one community to another one right and uh, so this change will happen and under a lot of circumstances or inst instances management is necessary in order to maintain the status quo of a natural area 
because even our large areas here in Botswana, these are, they are large in comparison to, let's say, Europe, but they are still fragmented, isolated in a sea of human activity, in our case, cattle ranching. Yeah. And they are not connected to each other. And it starts with genetic variation. If these animals can't migrate in and out of it, especially in a smaller area and in a, in a fenced farm, it is absolutely necessary to manage your population in one way or the other, because your farm is an island in a sea of other farms divided by fences. Yeah. As a bottom line is, management is absolutely necessary. And management needs to inform politics and policymakers, and politics and policymakers need to understand that. And now I have to point fingers at myself a little bit, because as scientists, we often write in ways that nobody really understands, unless you are a scientist working on that very same subject right, yeah. yourself. So I have to uh, admit that, that uh, this is a very weak point of uh, most scientific publications, that they are written in a language that a non-scientist from that field even doesn't understand what it means, to be quite honest. So yeah. scientists out there, it always needs to have a summary that uh, no, the general a, public, the general public <laughs> does understand. Okay. No, that, uh, I think that, that was very informative and coming slowly to, to a bit of an ending. I think if we... Yeah, I want to draw a line underneath is something that I can really take away is to say, look, climate change and not just climate change, changing conditions, be it our natural ecosystems and things like that is something we need to live with and we can't just prevent it all from happening. We can dream of that, but it's probably not going to be the case. So we better prepare for the other scenario to live with it, with changing conditions, be that more floods, more fires, rising sea levels and so on. Um, and yeah. Uh, thank you very much for participating in the in this episode. Any any things you would like to add on to the end? No, you're you're welcome. You're welcome. Let's go and look at some burned areas. Let's load up the car. Let's grab the scientific equipment and get some work done so we solve these problems. Sounds All right. good. Let's thank get you on guys that. out there. Bye bye. <laughs> bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Kalahari Diaries. Did you enjoy the podcast? Fantastic. You can help me tremendously by subscribing and rating it on your podcast app. Leave a review and tell friends and family about it if you feel like it. If you want to know more about this story, go ahead and check out the website on sergeythelioness.com or follow me on social media. You'll find me on Instagram and Facebook at Valgrüner, that is at V-A-L-G-R-U-E-N-E-R, and at Modisa Wildlife Project where I'm sharing photos and videos from the Kalahari on a regular basis. I'm Val and you've been listening to the Kalahari Diaries.